This is the word of the Lord. Nehemiah 7, 1 through 4 says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this has been a great Sunday already, hasn't it? Amen. And I look out and I see some faces that I haven't seen for a while. Some of our folks from the north have come south for the winter, and uh, we're just so happy that you're here. Thank you for being part, and we'll have many more that come in, uh, especially as we get towards January. Uh, that seems to be the, the, the pinnacle of uh, our, our guests, and they are as much a part of Vero Bible Fellowship as the rest of us. They love this place. They are involved in ministry while they're here with us. I just pray every day, Lord, have them just move here and live full time. Amen. Okay, so they're out of the Lord's will. We're praying that they'll get in the Lord's will. <laughs> no, I would not do that to them. They're wonderful people, and, and they are doing exactly what God has told them to do. But I want to thank uh, uh, Galen again for the faithful uh, service to the Lord by standing and praying outside the abortion clinic. If you'd like to join them, uh, Galen would give you all the information you need, and, and you can do that. And uh, really, it's an extension of our church, is it not? That uh, what's happening down in front of that abortion clinic where people are praying, that's an extension of our prayers. That's an extension of members of this church who go and participate. And I hope that you would consider that as well. Well, today we're going to open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. And uh, we will uh, allow the Lord to uh, give us some insight, some practical insight into what's happening here in this wonderful book. If you're familiar with our church, we really focus on a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, type of teaching. And today will be a little bit of that, but we'll probably be more expounding on the first four to seven, nine verses. And then because the rest of it is a genealogy, I don't plan to read through the genealogy. Uh, number one, because I can't speak half the names. They... they it's really, I guess if I really knew Hebrew well, I could say all the names accurately. I can't do that. But uh, also because that's in the first few verses, we, there's so much here that we can glean. And so we're going to do that. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, as we now open the word, may, may our hearts be quickened by the Holy Spirit. May the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth. Help us to understand, Lord, what this text is saying. Father, obviously, the fact that it's canonized, it's in the Bible, there are things here that you want us to know, 
And oftentimes, it's what you want us to know about you and about ourselves. And so today, I pray, God, that you would make clear to us your theology. What is it you're saying about you and about us? In Jesus' name, amen. A second century Christian by the name of Tertullian once said, the ignorance of Scripture is the ignorance of Christ. To the degree that you know the Word of God, you will know Jesus Christ. Yet I know so many people who will talk long about how they have a close relationship with Jesus and what that relationship has produced in terms of the feelings, the emotions of that relationship. But those same people, many of them, do not open the Bible. So what happens is you get a Jesus that's not in the Bible. You get a Jesus that you have emoted over, that you have intellectually created. And many people today, Christians, they call themselves Christians. And they will, they will go to their death saying that they know Jesus, but they don't know his word. And so today we want to begin with the word and hopefully by the end, we'll know Jesus better. And maybe some of you might even be saved today. That's the prayer. Tertullian also, he had several different quotes. Here's another one that is very interesting, and I think it fits appropriately to the text that we're reading today. Tertullian said, life is not worth living until you find something that's worth dying for. Life is not worth living until you found something for which you would die. So for what are you willing to die? It's a great question. It's one that we need to answer because if you're willing to die for it, it must be something that really matters. What really matters in your life right now? What really matters Based upon Tertullian, if you don't know what really matters, you won't feel like you're really living. And maybe that's true because I know I've been there where I'm going through life and I'm stopping and going, wait a second. I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm not gaining any traction. Where am I going right now? How is God using me? What am I doing? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been there? where you're not sure that life is really making you, making any sense, it's, it's, and, or, or maybe life is just passing you by, we can get there. That's just how life can be sometimes. The question to ask is, where is God in all of that? If you're spinning your wheels, if you feel like life is passing you by, if you just don't seem to have a direction that you're focused on, that, that really matters. Where is God? Because guaranteed, I, I promise you, where you find God, you'll find purpose. And a lot of times when we're confused, dazed, whatever, it, 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 it could be a sign that maybe we've drifted from God. We've lost our purpose for living. Could there be a better thing to die for than Jesus Christ? The truth is, if you're asking where is God, he is 
right there with you. I know you don't feel it. I know you can't see it in that moment. But he is there. His Hebrew name is Jehovah Shammah, the God who is there. You say, well, where is there? Wherever you are. He's there. Psalm 139, you ought to go home today. Make Psalm 139 your devotional this week. It's a long psalm. Break it down. Just read it. Meditate upon it. Let God speak to you through it. You'll find out just how close God really is and how important you are to God. But the real question is not, where is God in all of this? The real question that we should be asking is, why aren't we joining him in life instead of trying to make life work for us? Why aren't we joining him in the journey of life rather than trying to get God to join us in what we want? If you really want to spin your wheels and not really go anywhere by the end of your life, live for yourself. Live for the things that are important in your flesh nature, the things that you have determined are most important to you, leaving God out of the picture. That is the greatest waste of life that there could be. You were created by God the Creator, and God the Creator gave you all of the abilities you have, the faculties, the mind that you have that's unique to you. The personality that you have is unique to you. All of these things are important, and God has a purpose for those things to be used in his glory. And if you never get there to understand how important God is to life, you'll never truly have meaning of life. This understanding of what really matters, that is the thing that matters most to God is what I'm talking about here. That, that's what we find in the book of Nehemiah. It's all about what Nehemiah learned about Jerusalem, God's holy city. Nehemiah set out on a journey by God to return to the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and then to reclaim the people to a spiritual life in God, the nation of Israel to return to God as their one true and living God. That, that is All of that is about God. And all of that is the greatest thing that would matter in Nehemiah's life. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're caught into right now, is God in it? More importantly, is it God's work? Or is it your work that you're hoping God will join you in? He really isn't interested in letting you in your finite capabilities determine what is infinite in his mind. You'll never get there on your own. You need God. As we come to chapter 7, and, and this is an interesting book because the first six chapters we have looked at the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They were torn down by the Babylonians 70 years earlier, actually more like 70, uh, maybe, maybe 80 years uh, earlier, and, and they were hauled off in captivity, all the Jews of the city. And now they've returned God, it's time for God to release them to come back. Why did God haul them away? Because they had turned from the one true God. They had made their own gods. 
Sports can be a God. Your spouse can become your God. Your children can become a God. Your job can become a God. Your title can become a God. Your reputation in the community can become your God. It's amazing how quick and easy it is to make up a God and worship it. Worship simply means worth-ship. It's worth something that's of great value. If you place greater value in your spouse, in your children, in your job, in your title, then you do the one true living God, you are out of sorts. You'll never know the purpose and meaning that God has for your life. We can get there. So he goes back, in the first six chapters, they rebuild the walls. First, they put the city in order. They, they want to worship God. The temple has already been built uh, and so now Nehemiah shows up, the walls need to be uh, uh, reestablished so that there is security for the people to worship God. That's the first half of this, not the first half, but the first six chapters. Chapter 7 that we're in is a transitional chapter. The rest, the remaining from chapter 8 to chapter 13, that is about the restoration of the nation of Israel to God. So we're going to be going there sometime after the first of the year. Uh, we will cover one more week, probably of this particular chapter, and a little bit of the next chapter. And then when we get to December, we're going to do a four-part series that's focused around Christ at Christmas time. okay? So that, that we'll, we'll put Nehemiah on hold. When we finish Nehemiah, it, God seems to be guiding me a lot lately to the book of Galatians. So it's very possible that we'll make Galatians our next verse-by-verse study. And there's so much there for us to learn from. But anyway, so back to this. Interestingly, if you look with me at chapter 6, just, just go back. Because I want you to see why the people were commanded by God to rebuild the city, the walls. Yes, for security. But there's a deeper meaning. And look at it, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul. In 52 days, they rebuilt the walls of the city, and they reestablished the gates and the doors. And when all our enemies heard of it, and by the way, we already studied in the first six chapters that the enemy was great, and the enemy surrounding the city tried several times in several different ways to stop the work of God. Of course, whatever God plans, it will prevail. And the wall was built in 52 days. Now look at this. When our enemies heard of that, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Stop, if you will, and look here. So the wall is completed, the walls of Jerusalem, this city, surrounded by all these nations of people, and immediately upon the establishing of the walls, their own esteem fell. They used to think they were something. But when they saw the people of God rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days, look what it says, they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So the greatest 
purpose in the rebuilding of the wall was that the nation surrounding Jerusalem would know there is one true and living God. There are not many gods. Polytheism is a joke to the one true God. There is one God. And he wants his name to be known by all peoples on the earth. And by building this wall, that's exactly what God the Father did. He established his name above their names. Their self-esteem fell when they saw the greatness of God. And the fact that God used a cupbearer to the king, a waiter, to come to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls with the people of the city. Powerful story. This was God's work, and there could not be any greater reason for Nehemiah to live than for that reason. Now, again, chapter 1 through 6, if you want to write it down just for outline's sake, it's about the reclaiming of the city of Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13 is the reclaiming of the hearts of the people back to God. And that's where we'll finish the rest of our time in Nehemiah when we come back to it. So what is chapter 7 about? It's all about learning what matters most to God. Nehemiah is learning this, and he's practicing this, and we can glean so many wonderful truths from what Nehemiah learned. Who are these people? These are God's people. And by the way, people matter to God. So Nehemiah has all the names of the families recorded so that he can evaluate who he is working with as they return to worshiping God. So let's go through this passage and learn more about what matters most to God. This is really good stuff. Number one, worship matters to God. Worship matters to God. Look at verse 1. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. So the wall project for God is completed. The gates and doors have been hung. But why? Okay, why? so that the people living in the city would be safe and they would be free to worship God. When we join God in his work, know that we are working on a grand plan. It is a wonderful plan. Here we are getting ready to take ownership of a property on 82nd Avenue, 10 acres, beautiful oak trees, a beautiful building that we're putting a brand new roof on uh, and, and 12,000 square feet, uh, a great opportunity for us to establish a, a beachhead right there uh, on 82nd Avenue for decades to come that the name of the Lord might be great. Amen? It's worth it. The first group that Nehemiah assembles as they are about to do this wonderful thing of re recovering the spiritual life of Israel the first thing he does is he assembles the singers and the Levites. The singers and the Levites, who also, he said, are to, to man the gates. You're going to do two things. You're going to lead us in the worship of God, but you're also going to make sure you're working on that wall, watching for the enemy. And that's generally how God works. It's not just one thing. Well, what I really love is worship. I just love to come to church and worship God. Well, that's, that's wonderful. But what about serving the Lord? No person who truly worships God would, would not think 
to stop and, and serve him. They, you always do. You want to serve him. Amen? Amen. You want God to be first in your life. The first group that Nehemiah assembles are the singers and the Levites. These men take priority here as he begins this spiritual awakening in the city. It, they, they take priority because the worship of God was the reason that this city exists. It's the greatest thing the people in that city can do. That's why it's called the holy city. That's, it's a special place, a place where people will come through for these three great feasts. There were seven feasts, but three that were really, really big feasts. And the Jews would come from all of the known lands at that time in history. They would gather in Jerusalem. Three million Jews would come and offer sacrifice to God, worship the Lord. It's a big deal. And now here we see this is being established in the Old Testament. I don't know. Maybe they're, they're going to hold choir practice. That's why he said, I want the singers and Levites. Uh, but you're also going to stand guard while you're practicing. While you're singing, stand guard. Do something besides just stand there and sing. Okay? From what we read in the book of Revelation chapter 5, how many of you are excited to go to heaven? Raise a hand. Well, I sure hope you like worship. Because here's what it says in Revelation chapter 5. A good part of heaven will be spent praising God in corporate praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's what you're going to sing. You're going to sing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever in the throne room of God, which is the temple of God. His throne is the temple, and there you'll be, and the seraphim flying around with six wings, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory, and you're going to be there for all eternity. And part of what we'll do in heaven is worship the Lord in a, in a, in a purity that we cannot have on this earth. I, I feel like the Lord's day is so special. I have always felt that. When I rise on the Lord's day in the morning, the first thing I do is I go to Pandora and I bring on uh, worship music. I don't want to know anything about football games from the day before. You say, Pastor, that's just because your hurricanes stink this year. <laughs> if they were playing for the national championship, which they have five times, by the way, and I was a Hurricane fan back in those days as well. Let me just tell you, I went to bed early. It was a late night game because I want to rise on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day to worship God and God alone. The day belongs to the Lord. We all have issues that come up in life. Sometimes we get smacked upside the head because we didn't see it coming. Life's not always fair and problems come to all of us but not on the Lord's day. God deserves honor and praise. It's the first day of the week, and it's, the great, it's a great way to establish your week on the Lord's day. Bring glory to God. Lay your problems aside for a moment. Greater than the problem is the greatness of your God. To the degree that you know how great God is, that'll tell you how you should handle your problem. 
Some of you have only focused on your problem, so your problem in your mind is like so big, it's just huge, I can't do anything with it, I'm just overwhelmed, blah, blah, blah. You've taken your eyes off of God who is bigger and greater than your problem. You need to have a mooring from the word of God. That's where you want to be tied to and go back to who God is. Now all of a sudden, that huge problem to your God, very manageable. And my God has a plan, and it's in place. And I just need to trust him with it. This is so important, so important. In heaven, we're going to be caught up with the beauty of the glory of God that we will be lost in wonder and love and praise, and there won't be any problems. Won't that be wonderful? No problems? Hey, think about this, men and women. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, no more wrinkles. No more chubby. No more things out of sort on your body. No more sagging of anything. You're not worried about nothing. No worries. There's no darkness in heaven. There's no fear in heaven. You are in the presence of the living God, totally sold out in unadulterated worship. Wow. And you know what God wants on the Lord's day? He wants a little bit of heaven to come into you in this place. When we come together, we make this about God, not us. It is not about any man. It is about the Lord. I love what Vance Havner said. I, I think it was Vance. Yeah, Vance Havner, a pastor. His wife passed away on a Sunday morning early. She fell asleep and never woke up. He reached over to touch her in the morning, and she was gone. He got up. He took a shower. He prepared himself. He put on his suit, and he went to church, and he preached a sermon. And then he went home and dealt with the death of his wife. Not even the death of his wife was going to take precedent over his honoring and worshiping of his God. I love that. There's something in that. Something that we can hold on to. He says also, not only is, does worship matter to God, but godly character matters to God. If you look at verse 2, it says, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle. That would be uh, the fortress that they had in the city. He gave him charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. That's interesting. Nehemiah was an exemplary leader who knew that to be effective, he would need to delegate responsibilities to other competent men. But being a skilled and gifted person isn't the main requirement for leadership, not in the Bible. In many churches, it is. We look at the gifting. We look at the skill level, the experience level. We say, oh, that makes them the leader. No, no, not in the Bible, it does not. The most important thing is godly character. Do you see God in them? Not just because they have a gift. You can be a 10 in your gifting and be a 3 in your spiritual walk. And you'd be the worst thing in the world for somebody to place in leadership of a church. You can be a six in your gifting 
and a nine or a 10 in your desire to follow God and to live for God and be a witness for God, and that church would be blessed to have you. They should be blessed to have you serving in some capacity. Godly, godly witness, godly leadership. He picked Hananiah probably because Hananiah was not just his, his blood brother, but he's one of the original men who came to him and told him how bad the city was. When Nehemiah first began to pray and fast, and then God raised him up to go and take care of the problem in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah appoints him as the civil leader of Jerusalem. Then Hananiah is appointed as the military leader because, it says, he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. As we think about godly character, there ought to be three traits that we see here that we can speak of. First of all is faithfulness. He was more faithful than many men. Faithfulness means reliable, true. It means to be firm. You don't waver. You don't vacillate. Where James says uh, that uh, if you're unstable... If you are double-minded, in other words, I think about that this way today, but tomorrow I think about it this way. James said, you're a double-minded man. And here's what he said. If you're double-minded, you're unstable in all of your ways. To be double-minded is to have two visions, not one. And two visions means division. You're divided in yourself. That's not godly leadership. Godly leadership is firm. Godly leadership is not based on what a person thinks. It's based upon the word of God. And I'm going to stand true and be firm in what I know the truth says. That's godly leadership. Amen? Okay. So if you want your life to count for God, you need to work at being a faithful person. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, faithfulness. Isn't that something? It's one of the fruits, which means, you say, why do you bring that out? Because you can grow in it. If it was just a skill, some people are good at it and others aren't. But it's not. It's, if it was just a gift, some are faithful and others aren't, that would be terrible that you didn't have the gift of faithfulness. How could you be saved? No, no, everybody has faith. But it's a fruit. You can become more faithful. You can grow in your faithfulness. Paul said that it is required of stewards if they be found trustworthy or faithful, 1 Corinthians 4.2. So faithfulness is also an essential ingredient in relationships. If you don't trust someone, you won't get too close to that person, will you? You will always keep your distance because you fear that they will take something that you know and they'll disclose it to other people. They can't keep confidence. Or Maybe they'll twist what you say as they speak to other people. Our God is a faithful God. Is that not good? Amen? Our God is a faithful God who always speaks truth. He always keeps his word. As we grow in God, we become more godly. We, too, keep our word. And we keep the word of God in our hearts. We protect it because we want to live by it and not be influenced by worldly systems of belief. You want to be a faithful person? Live by the book. I can't say it any more simply than that. 
Spend time in the book. Honor the commands that God has given to you in his word. If you're a husband, be a faithful husband. How? By providing for your family. Be a good provider. Ladies, those of you who work, be faithful in your occupation to your boss. Give a full day's wage, but then give also a full day's work. Amen? All right. So what about parenting? Parents, train your children in the Lord. That's faithfulness. I'm, I'm trying to give you some basic ways to become more faithful. How about being members of God's church? Serve him in some capacity. Find a place to serve. For a couple weeks now, we've talked about the importance of needing more people to serve in the greeting ministry. Okay? You want to be faithful? Do you have a ministry? Do you like people? If you don't like people, uh, please don't serve in the greeting ministry. <laughs> but if you like people, then we have a place for you. Serve. Serve. Be faithful. All of these things will add meaning and purpose to you. Here's another thing that will help you become more faithful. Start with little things. Start with little things. Sometimes we think, oh, to be faithful, I've got to do this big thing for God. I've got to take on this big project. I've got to start this big ministry. No, no. Start with the little things. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things you will be faithful with much. Do you know what he was talking about when he said little things? What the text is? Money. Jesus. Start with the little things. Be faithful to God with your money. That's the little things he's referring to. Do you squander your money on things that don't really matter? Do you squander your money on selfish pursuits? Do you invest your money unwisely? Nothing of any true value to God to show for it? You need to invest in the purposes of God. And there are many ways to invest in the purposes of God. You might begin to invest by being part, taking your body down to the abortion clinic and standing with the group. But you can also invest your money when you give to this local church, part of our fund is, is missions. Part of our funding is to go and support the CareNet, which is an organization in our community that we give money to. Be part of that. Be part of that. Be faithful in the little. Keep your word. Be honest in your financial matters. Be honest on your taxes, on the paying of your taxes. Do you live an, ordinary, an orderly life? Do you keep appointments on time? These are things, these are ways, little ways that you can become more faithful to God. Here's another one. Keep your relationships in right order. This is a hard one, isn't it? Because we can get sideways with somebody that we've had relationship with and maybe they're getting a little wonky, and we're like, man, I'm, this is really frustrating me, and it's freaking me out. And next thing you know, you're no longer friends. The Bible tells you when somebody gets a little bit out of line or they, they've done something that's wrong, go to them. Love them enough to go to them and say, hey, brother, can I point this out to you? This is what I'm seeing you do. 
help me understand what's going on. And you're, you're lovingly calling them away from whatever it is that is taking them far from God. That's what we should do. That's, that's faithfulness in relationships. What, what's easy to do is what the world does. Somebody wrongs you and you write them off. Forget you. Forget you. I, and you throw them on the scrap heap. To God, they're not scraps. They're real people. How do you know that God's not trying to use you to reach them to see a wrong that they've done? You're not giving them the opportunity, if you, if you write them off, you're not giving them the opportunity to do what's right. If you go to someone and you say, brother, what you said behind my back to this person, it hurt deeply. It hurt deeply. You just gave that person the opportunity to own their mess and say, you're absolutely right. I shouldn't have done it. Would you please forgive me? When that happens, you've won your brother or your sister back. Now you're one again. If they choose to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to talk about it. The Bible says, now bring a witness with you. Bring the person with you that they spoke badly about you to. Brother, this is the person that told me what you said. Are you saying you didn't say it? You're actually trying to help them come to the end of their flesh, of their selfishness, of their pride. Sometimes they'll say, okay, yeah, I did it. I did it. I admit. They go through repentance and they're restored. Other times they still deny it. Then the scripture says, break fellowship. You don't have to be in relationship with people who are going to hurt you and not take any responsibility. But, but let me finish this. Listen now. Breaking fellowship simply means for a season, I'm going to hand you over to this life that you now are in where you deny God, where you deny truth. And I'm praying for you that you'll come to the end of yourself and that you'll return and that we can have a relationship again. Even in breaking fellowship, the end result is reconciliation. I want to restore, I want my brother, my sister restored. But that's biblical. I just gave you biblical precedent for that. Your relationship with Christ should be first, not relationship to people. Your relationship with Christ. How you relate to Jesus Christ says everything about how you relate to people. People who truly are in the Word of God and have an intimate relationship with Christ would not allow themselves to stay in a bad place with somebody, not on their part. They will do everything they can. Brother, would you please meet with us that we might be able to talk further about this? That's, that's in the heart of a person who truly has put Christ first. For me to take the position that ah, it doesn't matter, uh, they're, 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 they're going to say what they're going to say, and I'm not going to get caught up in all that, and I'm not going to, and you walk away, that says something about your relationship to Christ, because the scripture doesn't teach that. That's coming out of your flesh. That's coming out of your selfishness. So when you're talking 
But first of all, have the right relationship to Christ before you go and try to correct your brother. Remember what Jesus said? Uh, it makes no sense for you to walk up to your brother. You've got a, a beam, a beam, a big beam, and it's in your eyeball, and you're like this, dragging this beam. Hey, brother, i got to talk to you about something you did. And what does he have in his eye? A little tiny splinter. And you're going to fix, you're going to correct him with the splinter when you're carrying a beam in your eye, your own sin. Jesus said, uh-uh, wrong picture. You need to deal with the beam first. Make sense? Relationship. Be faithful in your relationships. The third thing that we see in our text is spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment matters to God. Now, he gives a charge, Nehemiah gives a charge to Hananiah and Hananiah in verse 3. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of the guard, of, of, at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. And the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt as of, as of that time. So together, these two men, these two new leaders, are charged not to open the city gates until the sun was hot and to bolt them and stand guard when they were shut. They were also to appoint guards from the residents of the city. Each would serve in front of their own house as watchmen. Nehemiah not only built the wall with the sword and the trowel, but he also posted guards and gave careful instructions to these appointed leaders. The two are not in opposition here. I want you to see this. It's important that we serve the Lord, okay, just as we worship the Lord. It's important that we stay discerning. We, we keep our eyes up, even though we trust people. The Bible, there are people who say the Bible commands that you not judge anybody. Well, first of all, you need to understand what Jesus meant when he said, judge not lest you be judged. First of all, he's talking of judgment as a, as a condemnation. He's saying, don't ever condemn somebody. Remember I said earlier about throwing somebody on the scrap heap? That's a condemnation. Basically, what you're saying when you give up on them is they'll never change. And you walk away. That, that's a sin for you to think that. You're not God. You can't judge people to that degree that you condemn them to hell. You need to always take the position, they're redeemable. God can redeem anybody. And so I'm going to do my part, according to Scripture, to help them be redeemed. Amen? So, but, but then at the same time, be discerning. Discerning, discernment is also a judgment. The Bible says that as Christians, we should judge, but not hearts. No man knows another man's heart. I cannot judge your heart. But I am to discern what I see in you. I can follow your fruit. Jesus said, you'll know them by what? By their fruits. So when I see somebody who claims to be a Christian, and on Sunday morning they're like this, worshiping God, which is beautiful, that's good. But then through the week, in their business practices, the fruit is rotten, it's stinky, and it leaves a mess I need to discern that, not to condemn them, but
but that I might go to them and help them. So this is a very important point. Spiritual discernment matters to God, that Christians would be discerning of things. The, hey, the scripture says, test the spirits. Just because somebody seems to have a prophetic ministry does not mean that that's of the Lord. You know, Satan can also do that. In fact, in the end, it says in Revelation that many are going to be led away from God. They're going to be led and deceived and end up in hell. Why? Because Satan himself, the Antichrist himself, they will be able to do signs and wonders. And if you've made your Christian experience all about signs and wonders, you could easily be deceived at some point. There's got to be more to your walk with God than what you feel, what, what I feel in the moment. Oh, I just love going to that church. It's so spirit-filled. As if a church is not spirit-filled? If the people are truly saved, the spirit is in them. You can't say they're not spirit-filled. What we mean by spirit-filled when we say that, are you a spirit-filled church? What we're really asking, do you do certain practices openly? That, that's not necessarily a sign that it's spirit-filled. A lot of godly people have never lifted a hand in worship to God. But in their hearts, they've bowed before him. They've fallen prostrate before him. You just can't see it. That, that's why we got to be careful not to judge hearts. So we are discerning. More than what a person says, what, more than how they present themselves, more than how they dress, more than the title they carry, is how do they act when nobody's around? What are they like when they face trials, deep trials in life. You want to know a person's character? Watch them when things aren't good. Not in the worldly standard. Watch how they handle it. That'll help you discern who is truly of God from those who are not. Nehemiah was very careful here. He wanted the people to both serve on the wall, watching, but he also wanted them to worship God. He wanted them to be discerning of what's going on, but also worship. You can't do, listen, you can't judge the wrong way and be a spiritual person at the same time. You can be spiritually discerning and remain a spiritual person. Jesus warns us frequently to be on the alert. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, you need to watch out for the work of Satan. Be, be on, the, on guard. Be alert. I don't want to be sucked into something that is of the enemy. For me, I've set boundaries in my life. I don't travel in a vehicle with a woman other than my wife alone. Okay? Now, if my wife is with me, I'll travel with a lady. But if I'm the only one there in the car with a, another woman, it ain't happening. I don't even go to public restaurants where people are all around and have lunch alone with a woman. Why? why? Why would that matter, Greg? Are you that weak as a man that you can't have lunch with another woman at, in front of people? It's, I want to be above reproach. How do I know that a person of, who's weak in their faith sees me with another woman at lunch and it doesn't cause them to stumble? It is not worth it to me. Plus, I want my wife to know I am absolutely, totally committed and faithful to her, and I'm not going to give the enemy the opportunity to plant a seed of temptation in me. 
or in her, this other woman. So it's a, it's a matter of protection. It's a matter of discernment, right? We need to be discerning. Put boundaries in your life that, that uphold spiritual practice and that keep you, that minimize the opportunities for Satan to tempt you. Uh, a general rule for men in the room right now, a general rule, when you are driving down the road and you see a woman who is scathingly dressed, she's not being discreet in her dress, don't look again. You did nothing wrong seeing her for the first time. That's not a sin. You didn't know she was there. You looked, you saw this woman. Oh, my goodness. Look away. Do not look back. You can control the next look. A spiritually discerning man will not let himself be tempted. He will not go back to that. Guaranteed, if you look back, Satan will use it and he will tempt you. Ladies, we don't even need to go with you where sometimes spiritual discernment is necessary. I'll just say this. Be careful in the shows that you watch. Use spiritual discernment. Be careful in what you place as most important in your life. You need to stay on guard and be, be very spiritually discerning that your children not become your God. Your kids need to know you are a wonderful, welcomed addition to our home. But God is first in this home. And because God is first, I'm going to be a great mom for you. Because I have a relationship with him. And then next in line is your father. Your third. I can't tell you the number of times I've counseled couples who have problems in family, and one of the key things that's missing is a love for Jesus first and a love for the spouse second. I've been there. It's easy to get there. Especially for a mother, because your kids are in your face constantly. It becomes first and foremost that you care. You've got to take time, find a way to have somebody watch the kids so that you can spend time. Maybe it's an, a date night. You can spend time with your spouse. And the kids need to know this is really important for mommy and daddy. What you are teaching your children right now as you raise them as a parent is what they will know when they get married. And if they never saw you placing a priority on God first in your life, they've never seen you pray, they've never seen you crack the Bible except on Sunday morning, you're sending a message to your kids. They're learning. They're watching. That's why many kids never come back to church. I don't think it's really... I don't think it's real. I think it's a joke. I think it's a game. I think it's a religion. That's all it is. It's not a relationship. Because I never see my parents practice the relationship with Jesus. Be careful. They're watching. Honor your Lord. Honor your spouse. Honor your children. Love them. Care for them. Nurture them. What's the best way? Same way to be faithful. Get in the word of God. Let them know what the Word of God says. This is why we practice what we practice. Well, but my friends are all doing this. Okay, they've chosen to do it. Their parents have said it's okay. 
We're saying to you, it's not okay. And here's why it's not okay for you. We're not talking about them, but this is why you're not going to be doing it. Yeah, but everybody, I'm, 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 I'm eight years old now, and my friends have cell phones. No, be, dis be discerning. Be discerning with your children and social media. Be discerning with your kids and movies and television shows. Be discerning. They need a mom and a dad who put Christ first. Um, there's another one, but I'll, I'll wait. We'll do it next week. And, and there's a couple other thoughts I have for next week as I look at this text. This morning, I wonder how many of you are hearing this, and maybe you've never been raised in a Christian environment, so this is new to you. By the way, that can be a real blessing, that you weren't raised in a Christian environment. That can be a real blessing. I'll tell you why. Because kids who are raised in a Christian environment, they know all the right things, but it doesn't have to be real. They can manifest the look, say the right words, hang out with Christians and be comfortable. Uh, they know how to play the religious game. They learned it from mom and dad. But when you are not raised in that, and all of a sudden you start hearing that God is creator, that you were made in his image, when you start learning that the Bible is, is your way to understand life, and that God's way is better than man's way, God's way in church is better than man's church, God's way in the home is better than man's way, all of a sudden, it hits you. I've missed out. No wonder my life doesn't feel as if it matters in the sense of eternity. Only with God can you have a life that matters for eternity. Amen? So maybe today is a day that Christ is calling you. And he's saying to you, come to me. Those of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, because I'm lowly of heart. I'm meek, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Maybe he's saying, today I'm calling you to salvation, to an intimate personal relationship with me. And he has the right to say that and do it, because he went to the cross and paid for your sinful life. If you will trust in him and his work on the cross for your sins. We're getting ready to study next month in our Christmas series, God Incarnate. Literally, God becomes a man. His name was Jesus. He was fully God and fully man at the same time, and he lived here for 33 years. He understands us. And he paid the price for us, for our sins. Today in this place, if you sense God calling you, why don't you just surrender? Just from your own heart before God, you say something to the effect, that you're surrendering. You're putting your arms up. Lord, no longer 
do I want to be in control of my life? Do I want to lead my life? Do I want to come up with a plan? Father, my plans have failed. I want what matters most. I want to live life with meaning and purpose. I want to die and know where I'm going. And I want to thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. That if I would confess my sin to you, you would be faithful and just to forgive me. You have paid, fulfilled the legal contract necessary for my sins to be alleviated in front of God the Father. Just reach out to him. Let him know I'm a sinner that needs salvation. And you're a savior, the only savior who can give it. I ask for it today. If that's you and you're here right now and God is calling you in your heart, in your own words, just express that you're giving up and that you're turning to Jesus, that you are a sinner and you're confessing your sins so that you can be forgiven of your sins. Father, we want to thank you this morning for how you use your word, even a study in Nehemiah, to turn us back to you. For Christians that are here today who already know you personally, we can drift, we can get off course, we can begin to uh, 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 abide in other things, and, and, and the priorities change. We're no longer putting you first. We're no longer loving our spouse the way we should. We're no longer uh, raising our children the way you have told us in the word. Father, forgive us as we come back to you now, as we return to you confessing our sin, asking the Holy Spirit to be our guide in these matters. Lord, let us start with the little things. Time management is a little thing. But how we spend our time, how we make time for you and make time for the things that matter the most says a lot about our faithfulness to you. So I pray that you'd help us with that, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you're always ready to save a person that you're calling if they'll just repent, if they'll just turn and confess their sins before you. Thank you for that wonderful promise in the word. Thank you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Amen. Listen now, before you leave today, we've already been challenged. There's a table to sign up for greeting. There's also the table back there that Galen will help you if you'd like to sign the petition. Uh, that we can give to our state legislators and let them know where we stand regarding life. And then also, up front, we have altar prayer partners. We have elders who can join you up front if you have a prayer need. We will pray with you. If you today, listen, if you, if you gave your life to Christ today, today you reached out and you accepted his invitation for salvation and you confessed your sin, would you come forward and let us know? So we can rejoice with you because now uh, we know your name is in the book of life and there's great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. So we want to know it. We want to celebrate with you. High five you, okay? So come forward and we'll talk to you about that. All right, God bless each of you. Have an incredible day in the Lord.